welcome to Changemakers with me, Michael Heyman. My guest today is Joanna Jepson, the Anglican priest, campaigner, first female chaplain at the London College of Fashion and a padre to the British Army. Born with a now corrected congenital jaw deformity, Joanna made headlines through a legal challenge to the late abortion of a fetus with a cleft lip and palate, raising questions of morality around how we treat people born with disabilities. Her memoir, A Lot Like Eve, Fashion, Faith and Fig Leaves, offers a contrast of life before and after facial reconstruction and an exploration of the world of self-image. Joanna, what a pleasure. Welcome to Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me on, Michael. Oh, I'm so looking forward to sort of, sort of helping tell your story because obviously we've, we've met before and I just think there's so many chapters to, to tell. But I suppose a lot of what we're going to talk about today is, is identity, but also identity from the perspective of trying to to do the right thing and and I I noticed on the on your lockdown list which which accompanies the, this uh, this this issue that there was advice from your Sandhurst color sergeant to what he bellowed at you tell, tell us about that what what did he say oh those words they still echo do the right thing not the easy thing miss jepson and it was something that was bellowed at, at all of us recruits at Sandhurst but um now I'm a parent you know it's uh, taken on a whole life of its own and uh, something I now bellow at my son occasionally you know <laughs> do, you, do you think because I, I I really identify with with that Sam with, with, with that sort of saying and, and 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 I've heard it said in different ways at different times and of course one of the reasons it is said so often is because it, it is a hard thing to do now you come at life from a from a faith perspective from um whole whole life experience perspective which we'll, we'll go into shortly but in terms of tips for how to do the right thing have you have you have you got anything you'd share in terms of how to do that the thing I tell my soldiers, I, so I train recruits, and the thing that I tell them is you've got to practice. You've got to practice in order to become these values that we hope to espouse in the army, which are courage, discipline, integrity, and respect for others, and loyalty, and selfless commitment. You know, they don't just happen in some kind of glorious Matt Damon Hollywood blockbuster moment on the battlefield you have to practice them in the ordinariness of your everyday life and the way I kind of see you know or get them to see their lives as well as seeing mine is okay in those really boring humdrum moments throughout your day try and use those moments where you know you could you could go and help your mucker across the room polish his boots or you know somebody's not done something you're ready for bed but but the rest of your your room aren't ready they're still kind of folding shirts or you know polishing something a magazine I don't know go and use that experience that moment Mm. to actually extend yourself and become a bigger person because if you keep using those tiny little pegs that kind of are hung through our day then you get the muscle memory of character and I think oh, I that, love that the muscle you know, memory of character oh that's that's a great one that's it isn't it I mean we just don't become these things like well, spur of the moment well I was thinking about it you you and I've first met on a um on a, on a fantastic trip to New Orleans you were to go on to Angola prison not not as a resident but as a, as a visit <laughs> to take a view of the US penal system it was to be a visit that greatly changed your your thinking I believe tell us a little yeah. bit about it 
So I'd been asked to be a chaplain at Louisiana State Penitentiary. It's actually nicknamed Angola after the birthplace of its first slaves when it was a, a slave plantation. And I, I was married, newly married, pregnant. It was just not possible for me to go and be a chaplain. So I said, look, let me come and do a sabbatical here. And I wrote to the warden and I said, look, all of us, every one of us as a human being lives behind bars of some sort, you know, for most of us, those are spiritual, they're emotional, they're psychological, but for your charges, those are physical as well. But mm. even there, even behind those bars, we still have a choice about how we're going to show up and who we're going to be. And I wanted to go and, you know, get alongside those men in that situation that they're in. Some would say, you know, it's the bleakest place on earth. These men aren't going home. Mm -hmm. The average sentence is like 93 years without opportunity for parole. What did you find when you were there, when you met, when you met them? What, what was your abiding memory? So I was very surprised at the atmosphere in the prison. Uh, it's a huge place and there are different camps with very different men of different kind of, I guess, on their various journeys from still enraged, still hard of heart, raging against the system to men who are utterly transformed, who have gone through what I would call a kind of radical surrender, who have taken the courageous step and process of seeing what they've done and owning it and surrendering to it almost in order that they might become something other than the worst thing that they've ever done. Mm. And I think it's such a profound place <clears throat> of resurrection in a way. It's really changed me. Mm. But, but I think finding yourself has been a big part of your own story. And, and I'd like to take you back to that, if, if, if I may, into your early years. You were born with a jaw deformity, which made you the victim of bullying. You went through reconstructive surgery. That was also a major chapter in your life, one that you bring to life very movingly in, in your book. I, I struggle to actually even frame the question in mm. terms of the enormity of that experience and the influence it had on you because you write about it so emotionally. So I, I would just ask you to, to bring to life some of those early years for the benefit of listeners. Mm. Well, it was a very a loving home life that I had. But it was a very strongly evangelical Christian background that I had. And that was a very important part of the scene. Because as I emerged into my adolescence, my bones in my jaw began to grow out of place with one another. So it was only as I was kind of becoming a teenager that it became obvious that my my bones weren't fitting together. I couldn't shut my mouth properly. I, I couldn't hide the, the way that, my, that I looked. It was very difficult to hide. And so on the one hand, I was emerging into adolescence in a very big comprehensive school where people were only too quick to tell me that I was not acceptable physically. Mm. And so... I think, you know, because your whole sense of self is really being built at that time. I, I just learned that all the, the lovely fun opportunities that my, my peers took for granted 
weren't an option for me because I wasn't I fundamentally I wasn't <clears> accepted <throat> and on the other hand at home although my my family and the wider family of my church were incredibly loving and it was like a big family that the wider influences on us were very strict they were very fierce and they were very frightening. Let's take those one at a time. Because yeah. I think there is one, one part of your life, which was, I suppose, the public experience in terms of living living out of home and experiencing, to not too, put far, too fine a, a point on it, cruelty from others and how that affected you. And then there is the home side, the faith side, where... You know, you were you were being brought up with the view of a particular type of, I guess, religious experience in terms of a tough a tough God. Actually, mm. I suppose might might be one way of, of putting it. But but let's start growing up at school and beyond, because obviously, in the book, you talk about time nightclub, you know, an experience there about one bully saying from behind you, if you don't mind me quoting it, you are so ugly, why don't you just kill yourself? I mean, the most shameful, terrible things you could imagine. That is all part of your your backstory, Jan. And I guess in terms of you've chosen kindness and you've chosen to live a life about giving to others. And I suppose there is another fork in the road where you could have been a very different person. I guess the, the question is, what led you there and why? Mm. Well, I think at the end of my teens, I was so battered and so sort of taken apart emotionally by both what was being told and and said to me by the way I was being treated because of the way I looked and also because of what was going on church-wise. I had this sort of experience of, I I think really, I don't want to sort of cut to the chase too quickly, if you like, but I went to this convent in my early 20s and it was a place of contemplative silence and prayer. These women blew my mind. I mean, it sounds like there's a wonderful photograph of you with, with, with the nuns. I mean, it, it looks like that was a, a, a wonderful yeah, experience. It was. And I think what I saw in them, I went for this one day and by the end of the day, I'd taken this nun aside and I'd said, you know, I need to come and live with you. Because what I saw in them was utter rootedness and Mm. fearlessness. And the two things that had gone on in my teens had been ripping me out of myself, telling me I I wasn't acceptable within myself and making me frightened. You know, Mm. this fearful threat of hell just hung over my teenage years. And so in those nuns that I encountered, I saw the two antidotes to that experience I'd had as a as a teenager and those women they could hold anything they were so quiet so rooted they weren't perfect you know they'd they'd lose their temper with each other but it was funny and it was humane and it, it was felt, it present were they pre- did, did, they did were the present. Sons... right they were present and I just remember being in that chapel where I'd sit for hours in silence, left with the kind of the demons in my head. And yet it felt like everything was held. And for me, this was a transformational experience, whereas the experience of my childhood had been of a transactional God, Mm -hmm. a God who demanded that I behaved a certain way and he would then give me a place in heaven if I was lucky. 
Mm. You know, I, mean, I read that you described it as almost a terrifying experience in, in those, those early days. But I suppose just thinking about that thinking through a little bit later in life, were you able to make sense of this? I mean, I, I read how you talked about reconnecting with that younger child actually and that actually how you made sense of 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 the fear and the hurt and I thought it was very interesting when when I I watched a a brief video in preparation of this uh, where you talk about who am I and you say a more free person a more liberated person and a person living life to the full and I think it's by knowing your backstory a little bit that you kind of understand how much that must actually mean to you in terms of the exuberance to live a life in full. Is that that a fair summary? Absolutely. I think you've summed up, in a sense, the task of my life, which is to know and revel in the fact that every part of me is accepted. I am welcome at the party, you know, along with everybody else. And, And I suppose theologically, the party I'm talking about is the feast that that God, God invites us all to, that that is my picture. I think that so often we human beings, we, we want to do away with parts of ourselves. We want to cut away parts of ourselves. We want to squash parts of ourselves that we feel are unacceptable. And that's never the answer. And I think what I, what my moment, if you like, if there was a conversion moment, it was realizing that this system I'd grown up in, it didn't work. Mm. It just produced fear and fear does not heal or make anybody whole. And so what does? Well, it, it's love and it, it's knowing that every part of you is accepted. And that is my faith. Everything is accepted. And once I understand that every part of myself, even the bits that I don't like or get annoyed by, are accepted by God, then not only can I accept myself, I can then begin the work of loving and accepting Mm. others. And that's when we start changing the world and becoming peacemakers. Mm. Well said, by the way, but you said something earlier there about welcome at the party, which which got me thinking that a lot of people that I interview, their backstory will be from the perspective that they've often felt like an outsider and not welcome at the party and that that potentially has been a, a catalyst for change. And the more I've dug into it, we all in some way or another feel that we're not welcome at the party. I mean, I suppose right. you found you found your... Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it must be a, a heck of a party to get into. I mean, but, but if you think about... You know, I suppose you you found some of your answers via religion and faith. For those that don't have that, but still want to find self-acceptance, that still want to find balance and self-worth, what is the advice you'd give to them? Take out the word God and replace it with love. That's my simple starting place. Just lose the word God. It's fine. (laughs) It's just a label. It's but love love is even in maybe especially in those most desperate experiences of darkness in 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 our history that is where we do see the most incredible examples of love and light and people I think this is how I see it that that left to my own devices I would just constantly trip up over my own reactions and judgments and opinions and 
emotions and anger, etc. But if I can for a moment pause and sit with that, allow those emotions and those reactions to be, and then reach beyond it mm. to love, then... I, I'm with you, right? I mean, I, I'm, I, I believe that that, 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 that that is the, you know, that, that has to be the answer. But what I also observe is that even the very act of love is a very difficult thing to achieve. I mean, if you look at it, you know, around the world, you know, the, the, your, your fellow guest this week is, is Scylla Elworthy. He talks about, you know, same, you know, who has a quite a similar message, I think, actually, in terms of, but, but nevertheless, is dealing with a world that finds reasons not to love one another and to be divided. A lot of people may well have gone through traumatic life experiences to do with childhood or mm. to do with early mm. adult life and and similarly that that makes it almost impossible for them to love and and to connect so i suppose i suppose I, i'm i'm just sat here thinking the how well that's i think we recognize love don't we when when we're shown it when mm. we have kindness shown to us and i think a lot of my work both in the prison and in the army has been about helping people to lead as people who will call forth from others the the human being that they haven't yet experienced themselves to be if you think about those men in the prison that the night that i went in for the first time to teach a, a, a seminar the warden, uh, Bell Kane, said to me, remember, most of these guys are the victim of crime. Mm. I thought, whoa, OK, well, let's start with forgiveness then, because that's also been a theme of my life. So let, let's start with forgiveness. I went in and I just shared my story, which then gives other people space to see themselves right. in a story. And then through the, the work I'm doing, I'm opening up perhaps an opportunity for people to see that there can be a different response to the, as an alternative to the burning rage or fury or resentment or hatred that so often people act out of because they have been hurt mm. and damaged. And I suppose forgiveness on, on your own terms has got to be unconditional, hasn't it? In terms, of, I mean, I, I read a, an interesting part of your story where you talked about encountering a school bully when you were older who you saw in, in a pub. And you said, I think it would have been incredibly tiring and exhausting to have even in my mind tried to wreak havoc and revenge on people. So I suppose however you get there, whether mm. they still are, you know, blinded by the hate or whatever it might be, forgiveness is something for you to, to give, not receive in that moment, is it? Yeah, I mean, that just seems so long ago now. In a sense, I've got bigger fish to fry <laughs> now in terms of forgiveness. And it can take me years. I'd say I'd, I've spent a good proportion of my adult life wrestling with this forgiveness thing. Mm. And the, the weird thing is that no matter how intently I have almost set myself against the idea of forgiving, there is a call to it that I can't silence. And part of engaging with it is just saying, I don't want to, you know, mm. shouting at that still small voice within. I don't want to. I'm choosing not to forgive right now. And that's where it has to begin. But at least I'm engaging with it. I'm on I'm having the conversation. Yeah, and, and, and I suppose it's, it's a signal of 
you know, your, your quality, your spirit, you know, however you describe, you know, the, the, the very act of being able to forgive is a quality. And I suppose the question is that, you know, we live through these big life experiences where that ability to forgive or, or how or move on becomes very much in, in question. And I mean, we're living through one now, a global pandemic where, you know, I, I think the biggest questions a lot of people are asking is, does this change anything? Does it does it change us in any way? Does it change our propensity to be better people? Or actually, is that just 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 fanciful? I mean, it's, it's a kind of recurring question for me in these interviews is trying to understand where does this actually take us? And I think that that is the, the question that we just sit with, whether it's that question or whether it's a question of how do I forgive? My, my task is always to just sit with that question and, and do myself the honour and do others the honour of sitting in that question and just taking the time to say, let's be curious mm. about how this is working out right now. Let's be curious about where we are right now. Where are we finding ourselves? You know, now, uh, you know, in a sense, everything's been thrown up in the air and, and we're sort of looking at where the pieces have landed, where we have landed. Now we have to do the work of saying, okay, well, let's look and see. And mm. then we have to have the courage to tell the truth. Mm. And at that point, I think that the answer of what next then comes to life. But for most, for humanity has this great propensity between looking and seeing and telling the truth. It often deviates and diverts off into excuses and rationalization and blame and fear and avoidance and all those other human things that we do. Mm. And so I, I, my task is is always to help people, okay, let's sit with this and let's tell the truth about what we're seeing. Mm. And if we can do that, then we will know what next. The truth will set us free. I think the, tr the truth, th th I mean, that, that that is a great point. But I also think the curiosity point is a really interesting one, which is that, you know, a lot of people have had to contemplate things like mortality and pain and you know th this has been for our generation a shared global experience unlike yeah. probably anything since you know the um, second world war yeah. um, and I, I think it's a I think it's it, it's an interesting one in terms of where we go next um, and it may be that in a world that always seeks answers that we might just be trying to find better questions and that that's good because you know that <laughs> That's As a starting point. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what I, I keep coming back to in all these discussions about so what after uh, the year we've had is, well, it's very different for everybody. I mean, even in a street, you can have neighbours who've had incredibly diverse experiences of lockdown. And, uh, you know, for some people, it has been a gift for them in their particular circumstances. And for the people next door, it has been living hell and it has ripped their family apart because maybe they're living with a child who has learning difficulties or autism. And, you know, they cannot be contained so straightforwardly as, as the expectations have, have put upon us. So mm. 
you know, it, it's, I think we've got to give people space to say, well, what has been good about this? You know, it has been an abundant experience and abundance is about saying yes and yes to everything, yes to the whole. Mm. This theme keeps coming back with me, doesn't it? You well, know, it does. And, and actually, I, I mean, just, just to slightly move us on into your career story is that, you know, I suppose for listeners understanding, well, this is a, a person who, who has faith at the core of their direction of travel. But that has also led you on an unusual journey. And so if you were to try and sort of get a get a sort of a, a straight rule out and understand what, what takes you from being an, an Anglican priest to the London College of Fashion and then finding yourself on the front line with the British Army in terms of, I mean, th- there is clearly um, a journey there also, Joanna, isn't there? In terms of, t- try and give us some sense of what gets you to today. It is, I think it's always been about being with the people who wouldn't necessarily walk through the doors of a church. That's always been my calling. So um, I was a street pastor around the time I was living with the nuns in Wales. And I remember that everybody else on this project were just trying to get these youngsters into church as if that would solve their problems and make everything okay. And I remember at the time just being really puzzled thinking, I'm not sure that's the answer. You know, one, one young guy, Scott, he was a punk and he, I think I called him Joe in my book, but he was called Scott and he had different color hair each week. And, you know, he had been chucked out of home and he was living in a barn and his, his diet was speed and ice cream, as far as I could tell. Mm. And, you know, getting him into church was not the answer. That, and, and I just had this passion to, to go and be with him where is his life in that barn or on walking around the street sitting on the swings at the local park on a friday evening where where is he because god is there god is not located and monopolized by a church or a church building and so this constant pull to go out to where people are has always been the thing for me mm. and and whether it's prison or soldiers you know but but i suppose going back to what you said earlier if if you were to sort of take out the word God and put love is there, it's out there to find. I think that, you know, because I, I always feel that what's quite interesting is when people listen to shows like this is that obviously when, when they're challenged by people's beliefs is that quite often they'll, sometimes they'll recoil or sometimes they'll say, I really agree. But actually somebody else who I interviewed, who had quite a similar way of talking about this was Terry Waite, who, you know, spoke about the nature of the soul from the perspective of of love and the ability to love and the ability to forgive. And and he also went through, you know, obviously a hugely life-challenging experience being held captive. But the thing that I would say is, is the join between you and him is that you are both incredibly positive people, you know, where actually those those life experiences, certainly from the outside looking in, do not seem to have imprisoned or shaped you to the detriment of the character that you are today and I think a lot of people that when I get feedback from listeners are they're trying to find I guess tools and ways of of actually living good lives and I suppose you know we're, we're sort of in the back end of, of, of the interview now or well, the conversation now John in terms of like things that you've learned along the way mm. from these incredibly diverse sort of experiences what are the things you might share as as kind of like advice or tips or, or hacks in terms of how to do it well? I 
I think that the the phrase that comes to mind, if you like, my motto is in God's economy, nothing is wasted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we human beings, we set our sights on stuff. We set our sights on life goals. And what I've experienced is that, you know, when those life goals have been dashed or those experiences have have left have crashed through and left me, you know, pretty low and in a dark place, that that experience can be the gift that takes me and raises my sights to something more wholehearted, full bodied, um, all encompassing. Um, greater and I, I, I'm struggling for the words in the sense maybe more transcendent in a in a way than the thing that I was after or chasing after mm. to begin well, with well I think it, it brings me on onto a great final question actually I suppose well actually you, you'll be the judge of whether it's a great final question but it is just a simple question because I think it links very nicely to your tip for life and which goes with, with the lockdown list because I think you know it partly explains perhaps why you just said what you've said but I'm going to share it with you lean in pick it up and wrestle with it make life out of it and be grateful. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That I mean, that is what I just do all, <laughs> all the time. And I find good people to be with me in that process. And I, my, my intent is to be the kind of person who's available to others emotionally to give people the space to do the same for themselves. You know, what are the, what are the raw materials that I am being given today, this week, this month, at this season in my life, that I need to wrestle with and plant into so that I can grow, so that I can help others to grow. And something will, something will grow if you give it the space. And I think that is, that's the gratitude. It's that wonderful Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, the UN secretary. He said, for everything that has been, I say thank you to everything that is to come. I say yes. <laughs> what a what a wonderful place to leave it joanna thank you so much for joining me on change makers thank you change makers is brought to you by the campaigns firm seven hills and presented by me michael Heyman. pure being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant bt wolf to find out more head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear why not give us a rating